Good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to this. Welcome back to the podcast. I took a bit longer to get a new episode recorded than I intended. More than a week, as it turns out. Not enough free time? Too lazy? Landscaping work going on outside my window while trying to record? A little bit of a cough? Pick one or all of the above. So this podcast is going to be kind of a cleanup episode in which I catch up on some topics I didn't get to last week, but still wanted to chime in on. If you're wondering why I'm talking about the original Chewbacca passing away or Avengers Endgame, there you have it. Thank you for listening and providing some nice feedback on our last episode with Scott Russell, who runs Pastimes, a comic book shop here in Asheville. I stopped by on free comic book day, albeit much later in the day after most of the free goodies were gone, though Scott and Chris still took care of me, and it was a big success for them. They were pooped out, but in a good way. Remember, if you're in the Western North Carolina area or nearby regions, Pastimes is hosting artist Eric Powell on his tour for the Goons' 20th anniversary on June 12th. That should be a lot of fun. Hopefully Scott comes back on the podcast in the near future. In the meantime, give the Expendable Opinion podcast a listen. I know they have some thoughts on Avengers Endgame coming up. I'm probably posting another podcast in a day or two, which probably isn't the best way to get listens and downloads, but hey, it'll be fine. And depending on when you listen to this, it might not matter at all, and I shouldn't have even bothered mentioning it. But I'll try to get on some kind of regular schedule here. I know it's been more than a week since Peter Mayhew died, but we're catching up, remember? Just in case I need to say this... Mayhew was best known as the actor who played Chewbacca in five Star Wars films until Yuna Suatamo, I'm sure I butchered that, took over for The Force Awakens. Was Mayhew in the Chewbacca suit for the scene in which Kylo Ren kills Han Solo? Probably not, since Mayhew reportedly needed a wheelchair by then because of knee and back problems. But Chewie's anguished howl when Han is killed stays with me. Mayhew dying two days before Star Wars Day, may the fourth be with you if no one extended such wishes, might have brought even more attention and appreciation to Mayhew's career than would have been the case otherwise. Or maybe not. Chewbacca was a beloved, iconic character in the most famous movie franchise of all time. And since Disney owns Marvel and Star Wars now, maybe they can put him in an upcoming Avengers film too, or Guardians of the Galaxy, Chewbacca and Groot is the conversation we never realized we wanted to hear. So Mayhew's death was going to be news. But a community of fans, diehard and casual, came together online and in person, thanks to social media and Star Wars Day, to express their condolences and affection, which made the occasion more poignant. A celebration, really. As a kid raised on Star Wars, Han Solo was my favorite character. Yeah, I had a lightsaber toy and Luke Skywalker could use the Force, but Han had the Millennium Falcon, the fastest starship in the galaxy. That blaster. That slick vest. I had a larger size Han Solo action figure. I think when they're that big, you have to call them a doll. <laughs> but as I got older and old, I developed more affection for Chewbacca. And not just because I sometimes express myself with roars and grunts too. Chewie was exceedingly loyal to his friends. He could be ferocious, but also tender. And there's a sadness and mystery to his backstory that's only been hinted at in the movies. Mayhew did such a good job of expressing Chewie's range of emotions under that mask, 
with just a nod, a wide mouth roar, or chuckle with that jaw. He showed skepticism, sarcasm, bemusement, humor, pride, rage, and anguish. Sure, some of that was camera work, editing, writing, and sound effects. But Mayhew had great comic timing and gave those Star Wars directors a solid canvas to work from. We lost a part of our collective childhoods with Mayhew's passing. I have a Chewbacca Funko Pop on my desk that's now been moved to a place of prominence, right next to a Millennium Falcon toy. I swear some work does actually get done at this desk. Probably not much, though. But may the Force be with you, Peter Mayhew. So have you seen Avengers Endgame yet? According to the global record-breaking box office, you probably have. But it's still only been a couple of weeks since Endgame was released, and not everybody has the time to carve out for a three-hour blockbuster. Maybe a few people are waiting until Memorial Day weekend. I know I have some friends who still haven't seen it. Good luck to them on avoiding spoilers, since directors Joe and Anthony Russo declared the spoiler ban over about a week ago so that Spider-Man Far From Home could kick its marketing machine into gear. The second trailer for that film, which follows the events of Endgame, begins with a major spoiler. And there have been plenty of reactions and think pieces online as to what certain character and story arcs meant for the movie and the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Speaking of spoilers, if you still haven't seen Endgame, you might want to fast forward about 10 minutes to the next segment. Originally, I wanted to save this for the end of the show to make it easier to skip, but I'm putting a sports segment there instead. You have been warned. We lost. All of us. We lost friends. We lost family. We lost a part of ourselves. This is the fight of our lives. I don't know if you're interested in another Endgame review at this point. I wrote about the movie for Asheville's Mountain Express, giving it four and a half out of five stars. So that gives you an idea of what I thought. Surprise! I loved it! Chris Cox and I also took a deep dive on Endgame with a reaction on the Amusement Park podcast, which you can find at theamusementpark.net or your favorite podcast provider, including iTunes. But since I review and talk about movies a lot on the podcast, it didn't quite feel right to let the past week go by without at least saying something about the movie. If you want to see Endgame, you're going to see it, either because you have truly enjoyed these Marvel films, want to see this ride through to the end, or even don't want to be left out of the cultural conversation. I've seen some friends on social media say they've never seen a Marvel movie, yet they went to go see Endgame. I can't imagine keeping up with everything that happens. There are so many references and callbacks to the previous 21 films. But maybe there are just some basic adventure movie beats that feel familiar enough to carry those viewers along. I'm kind of surprised that I haven't seen Endgame again since opening night. I certainly intend to, but there have been other movies I wanted to see. And again, three hours is kind of a commitment on a weeknight or a weekend. Says the guy who will spend three hours watching a baseball game or NBA playoff game right now, by the way. But I do wonder if I'll see things a bit more objectively on a second viewing. Maybe some story points that don't quite work, plot holes that seem a bit more gaping, nitpicks about time travel repercussions, or maybe some character arcs won't feel as satisfying. But my overwhelming feeling after that first viewing of Endgame, besides, wow, I didn't feel the need to pee at all. Maybe I should have some water now. 
was how wonderful an ending it was for this massive storytelling undertaking by Marvel. It felt just about perfect. A reward to the fans who have followed along and made the Marvel Cinematic Universe into the biggest movie franchise ever. And a send-off to the actors who made Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Black Widow, and the Hulk into global icons. I'd love to include Hawkeye in that group, since he's always been my favorite Avenger from the comic books. But he's always been the Ringo star of the Avengers. Sorry, Jeremy Renner. I still love you, man. And I love you, Clint Barton. Okay, here's your last spoiler warning. It's not on me anymore if something from the movie was ruined for you from here on out. Even if there's a, a small chance that we can undo this, I mean, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try. If we do this, how do we know it's going to end any differently than it did before? Tony Stark got the heroic ending he deserved, and Robert Downey Jr. got to take his rightful bow. The first Iron Man film in 2009 was taking such a chance. He was a B-list Marvel character at best, and Downey was a huge risk to headline a big-budget movie. But he and director Jon Favreau pulled it off. Iron Man was a believable superhero that could plausibly fit into our world. Marvel could have left it at that. However, the ambitions were much bigger as shown in that famous post credit scene. I am Iron Man. You think you're the only superhero in the world? Mr. Stark, you become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. Who the hell are you? Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Marvel was really going to try to put the Avengers on screen to create a movie version of its comic book universe. And Robert Downey Jr. was the ringmaster. Marvel couldn't have had a better promoter, a better face of the franchise. And Tony Stark was the backbone of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. From the very beginning, he wanted to save and protect the world after selfishly doing so much to hurt it. Throughout the Iron Man and Avengers films, his greatest fear was that he would fail and let his friends down. But there were always hints that Tony would eventually sacrifice himself to save the world. In the first Avengers, he's the one who flew that nuclear missile up into the portal, risking that the missile would explode while he was diverting it, or that the portal would close before he could return to our dimension. His fears led him to create Ultron in the Avengers sequel, and in Civil War, get on board with the Sokovia Accords and superhero registration, which put him at odds with Captain America and divided the team. And in Infinity War, he took on Thanos and lost, lost with his life, but was saved by Doctor Strange. Taking all of that into consideration, who else was going to save the universe? Endgame even set us up for that, adding to the emotional punch by showing that Tony and Pepper Potts had a daughter. Now, he had everything to lose. But from a storytelling standpoint, Tony's death also worked well to present a victory bow for the entire Marvel cast. What else would bring all of these characters together again? It just felt right. What also felt very right was Captain America's ending. Who deserved a happy ending more than Steve Rogers? You're gonna need a rain check on that dance. A week next Saturday at the Stork Club. You got it. Eight o'clock on the dot. Don't you dare be late. Understood? When you watched Endgame and Steve didn't return as planned from his time travel trip to restore the Infinity Stones to their rightful place, you knew what had happened, right? 
Of course, Steve was going to take the opportunity to have the life that he was deprived of when he piloted the Red Skull's bomber into the ice and was frozen for 70 years. He saved his friend Bucky's life. He helped save the universe. He was worthy of picking up Thor's hammer. He got to admire his own ass while fighting his past self. Now it was time to go have that dance with the woman he always loved. Passing the shield to Sam Wilson was also the right touch. Sure, it could have been Bucky, and many fans probably think it should have been. But Sam had never been brainwashed and assassinated over two dozen people, including Howard Stark. He was a good soldier who didn't hesitate to help Captain America when asked, or go along when Steve tried to find Bucky. I love Anthony Mackie, so I hope he gets to be Captain America, either on the big screen or on the Disney Plus series that's in development. Sam Wilson, the Falcon, and his mighty shield. It's beautiful. So is Steve Rogers getting to grow old and live a happy life. I wasn't too enthusiastic about Black Widow's death when it happened, though. I enjoyed seeing how her character had grown into the leader of the Avengers after Thanos eliminated half the universe. But from a storytelling standpoint, it made sense. Natasha gave herself up so that Clint Barton could go back to the family he'd lost. We also knew from the first Avengers that she felt she had many horrible acts for which to atone. She wanted to erase that red from her ledger. Sacrificing herself for the Soul Stone accomplished that. It'll be fun to see Scarlett Johansson come back in that role for the upcoming Black Widow standalone movie, though. Maybe I'm overlooking Thor's ending a bit. For one thing, it's not an ending for him. We could very well see him with the Guardians of the Galaxy based on where Endgame left him. But Thor received some closure as the story developed. He was morose over failing to kill Thanos before the snap, trying to make the pain go away with food and drink, as so many of us do. But he also got a do-over through time travel, getting to say goodbye to the mother he lost. And in the process, Endgame kind of helped salvage what many feel is the worst of the Marvel films, Thor The Dark World. The Russo brothers and writers Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely deserve an ovation for that. Thor received a booster shot from Thor Ragnarok, showing that he could be a fun, cosmic adventurer rather than a staid, serious Norse god. No, he won't be the king of Asgard. He won't continue his father's legacy. But he's a much more intriguing character now and has been given new life. Will Marvel and Chris Hemsworth follow through on that? And how about the Hulk? Did he really get an ending or a new beginning? Certainly, if you follow the arc of Bruce Banner from a man who developed a power he couldn't control, something that sent him into seclusion when he's introduced in the first Avengers, then yes, Banner tried to tame the beast, but fled when he feared that he couldn't do so. Eventually, he embraced the rage within him, not treating it as something he needed to get rid of, but rather a part of his persona. Being the Hulk wasn't so bad. Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. The Hulk went into hiding when Thanos kicked his ass, and it was Banner who had to bring the beast back, but on his terms. We didn't get to see that whole story, and I think it'd make for a fun Disney Plus miniseries, even an animated one. But the visual of a toned-down Hulk with Banner's brain and personality, which fits Mark Ruffalo so well, wearing cardigan sweaters and flip-flops, was hilarious. Maybe he'll be the Tony Stark of the New Avengers, providing the tech and the guidance and the break glass in case of emergency reinforcement the team can use when needed. So there it is. 
Not so much a review as some thoughts about the endings of Endgame. I look forward to seeing the movie again soon, and if anything new occurs to me, I'll talk about it here. Also, I think it's time to finally go back and watch all of the Marvel movies again. I'm probably going to watch them in order of the Marvel timeline, rather than chronologically by release date. I know a lot of people have already done this, but I want to experience these movies again with what I know now that the story's been completed. And I want to do it at my own pace, rather than try and get it all done before Endgame comes out. Maybe that's something we can get into here on the podcast. As with most everything here, it's to be determined. Let's take a quick break so I can ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You might have to search under my name, Ian Castleberry, that's C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, until we can get a few more shows in our archive. Also, please leave a rating, or even better, a review if you're so inspired. We could use the signal boost in that big iTunes and Apple podcast space. Any feedback you can offer is very much appreciated, and I don't take your time or effort for granted. The podcast is also available for listening, downloads, and subscriptions on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, and TuneIn. Being on TuneIn means you should be able to listen to this on Amazon Echo, but Alexa can't quite pick up the difference between podcasts and podcast. Yeah, maybe I should have picked a different name. Even my nieces have programmed Siri to call me Uncle Sam. I don't know. They think it's funny. But you can still find us on the TuneIn app and website if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and downloading. One of my favorite things from the past week was catching part of HBO's broadcast of the 2019 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I actually stumbled upon a rerun of the show last Saturday night, I think a week after it originally premiered on HBO. I'll go back and watch the whole thing sometime, either on DVR or through HBO Go, because I do want to see Stevie Nicks, The Cure, and Roxy Music perform. But the show ended with Def Leppard's induction, speech from the band, and their concert performance. The timing felt perfect for me because it was the part of the show I would have wanted to watch most anyway. I was a huge Def Leppard fan growing up, something I pretty much kept to myself from adolescence through, say, my 30s. Def Leppard wasn't exactly considered cool, at least by most of my friends and the people I hung out with. I briefly let my fan flag fly in grade school, getting a Pyromania t-shirt for Christmas that I wanted so badly, but I don't know, maybe it didn't look quite right on me as a nerdy kid. I don't think my parents were crazy about me wearing it. My Uncle Mike got the shirt for me. And that was a time of life when you don't want to draw attention to anything people might make fun of or girls might not like. But Def Leppard had their moment in the late 1980s with the Hysteria album and huge hits like Love Bites, Hysteria, and Pour Some Sugar on Me. Finding success with power rock ballads compelled them to chase the same formula without getting the same results, though. And Def Leppard became kind of a soft rock caricature in the 1990s. 
There may be no better example of this than when the band appeared on VH1's Storytellers, a more intimate setting similar to MTV's Unplugged. The audience for the show was largely filled with diehard fans who would love Def Leppard since the early 1980s. Those fans stayed loyal even as the band's music softened to find more mainstream appeal. And if you want to hear the sound of someone's soul being crushed to find out that her favorite band had become sellouts, listen to this exchange lead singer Joe Elliott had with this fan. Um, anybody got any questions? Ah, this girl in the back, she's got a slang t-shirt on. She definitely yeah. deserves to answer question. I love this slang album. So do we, thank you. My, my question has to do with songs that you guys don't normally play that the fans really like. I'm online and I'm part of a big, huge online community and there are fans that have songs that they'd love to hear. We never hear anything off the first album, because I know you guys don't like that, but no, we, so like, we really like Wasted, All and we right. like, and off the new album. Yeah! See, the big but problem. My, my other question has to do with um, the single, that you always pick ballads, and I hear a lot of complaints about people don't like the ballads. And two, two songs that I'm hearing a lot of feedback about off the new album are All Night and uh, 21st Century, Shalalala Girl. Right. And we'd really like to know if those would be singles. They definitely could be singles. And we really like to hear those songs See, this play. is, a, this, uh, going back to your first question, uh, On Through the Night, Wasted, Hello America, blah, blah, blah. Rock. They were um, a bit like part of the Apollo 13 rocket. The, the bottom bit, it gets you off the ground, but when you're halfway up there to the moon, you don't need it anymore. Like them. And you also have to remember that even for the high and dry record, never mind that, yeah. I, Phil and Vivian weren't in the band. They don't have that much of a, a kind of a thing that maybe me, Rick, and, and Sav would have. So that's why we, we kind of tend to stay away from that. Also, you have to remember that when we go on stage, maybe in front of 10,000 people, uh, you and uh, anybody else that's uh, that way inclined are maybe a minority of 12. No, no really, seriously. And there's 9,988. Yes! They haven't got a clue what we're doing uh, because all they've heard are the hits, um, which goes on to your next question about the ballads. Um, we do have a say in what songs come out, which is why we specifically made a point of not releasing, say, To Be Alive or Goodbye as the first song of the new album, Euphoria. We wanted to come out with something like Promises or whatever. Um, we'd love All Night to be number one in the charts. Of course we would. But you take a band like Aerosmith and people will moan and groan that they only get to number one with a ballad, but hey, they get to number one and they're a rock band and they get there. And if that's the only way a rock band can get there is through ballads, then we'll put ballads out because we want to be able to challenge your Maria Careys and your Kid Rocks and your, you name it. And if, if a radio station won't play our mid-tempo or our rock songs, then we have to go with the other stuff. Simple as that. Yes, the band that you grew up loving, that you think absolutely rocked, just told you that they keep producing ballads because they want to compete with Mariah Carey and Aerosmith for the top of the charts. Ugh. Heartbreaking. But Def Leppard definitely gets points for persevering through the 90s and surviving into an era when nostalgia goes a long, long way. Joe Elliott said as much in the band's induction speech. We survived... And we came out the other side stronger people. 
And that's the way that it's always played out throughout our career. So let's face facts, people here. If alcoholism, car crashes, and cancer couldn't kill us, the 90s had no fucking chance. Forget what they became, remember what they were, including that they're a rock band with a drummer who has one arm, and everyone's happier in the end. And Def Leppard has the last laugh because they're now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm long overdue for a trip to Cleveland to visit the hall. Maybe I can find a version of that Pyromania shirt to wear again. This time, I'll wear it proudly. Okay, we saved the sports for last. Eventually, I'll stop introducing a sports segment with this prologue and just sound the sports alert. I get that some of you aren't into this stuff. But hey, most of my professional writing career has focused on sports. I hope it still will, by the way, if you're an editor listening to this. I'm not as fanatical as I once was, but I still follow most sports, especially Michigan and Detroit sports. It's a way of keeping connected to my home, for one thing. Sports alert. The 2-2. High fly ball center field. Gardner going back. Still going back. Track. Wild. And gone. I haven't followed the Detroit Tigers very closely the past couple of seasons because they've become very bad and intend to be bad. The consensus seems to be that the front office, led by general manager Al Avila, isn't following the tanking strategy very well, failing to get the top-rated minor league prospects that can fuel a revival. By the way, I pointed this out in an MLB season preview I wrote two years ago and was told I was wrong via direct message by a loud fan from Tiger's Twitter. Now that same guy is ripping Avila every day. I never expected a, hey, you were right, I was wrong follow-up, especially when I don't write about baseball or the Tigers much anymore. But it's amusing how this guy completely flipped. I hope others have noticed. It's hard enough to watch your favorite team intentionally sucking, but when the potential payoff might not even be there, as it's been with the Cubs, Astros, Phillies, and Braves, it's tough to buy in. It may also be tough for the Tigers' best hitter to buy in, judging from recent quotes by Miguel Cabrera. Let's begin by pointing out that as this is being recorded, the Tigers are 17 and 20. Actually, not bad. Not good, but not as bad as their record probably should be, thanks to the Chicago White Sox and Kansas City Royals being worse. But Detroit is six and a half games behind the first place Minnesota Twins and figure to fall further behind a team that surprisingly has the best record in baseball. The Tigers have also scored the fewest runs in the American League, have the third worst team batting average and OPS on base plus slugging percentage for you non-baseball fans. Oh, and they've hit the fewest home runs in the American League, too. And that brings us back to Miguel Cabrera. As I'm talking into this microphone, Cabrera has one home run. One. That allows me to cite my favorite sports comparison. Miguel Cabrera only has one more home run than I do, and I may or may not be wearing pants while sitting at this desk recording. Cabrera only had three home runs last season, but to be fair, he was injured and only played 38 games after suffering a ruptured biceps tendon. He's already reached that total in 2019. During his 17-year Major League career, Cabrera has hit 33 or more home runs nine times. In two of those seasons, he hit 44 home runs. 
Oh, and in both of those seasons, he won the American League Most Valuable Player Award. Cabrera isn't a classic slugger, however. He's led the league in batting average four times and is a career 316 hitter. So he doesn't have that uppercut swing meant to hit the long ball. He explained as much in an interview during spring training last year with MLB Network's Harold Reynolds. His swing is intended to cover the entire strike zone and allow him to handle a variety of pitches rather than jack the ball out of the park. Ask you one question. Go right ahead. Why is launch angle? Why is launch angle? What is launch angle? Yeah. You asking me? When they tell me about launch angle, like we talking earlier, like high five, you can hear the ball like with launch angle because you're going to miss the ball. So you're saying you should have a swing that covers the whole strike zone. Exactly, strike zone. I think you got you you do that when you hit a low pitch. You can go and then find the one, hit it up. Mm-hmm. But I think we can teach the kid like what we call it, like palm up to a ball. Like palm up is like this. You go again and do this, you know. Get your palm. Up. Up, yeah. You get up and you finish up. So you're saying you set your angle, palm up there, and then you finish here. And you finish up. But when asked last weekend about his lack of power thus far and concerns that fans are expressing, Cabrera scoffed, quote, Home runs are coming when they're coming. I don't worry about home runs. I worry about getting my job done, end quote. Okay, cool. Cabrera knows hitting and knows himself as a hitter, and I think most any baseball fan would agree that the worst thing a batter can do to start hitting home runs is to actively swing for home runs. Maybe the weather warming up will help. Maybe Cabrera still needs to find that power swing. But here's where he said something that isn't going to win him any sympathy. Quote, You know Prince Fielder? You know who's hitting behind me right now? That's a big difference too. How am I going to hit 40 home runs? In the past, I got Prince Fielder, Victor Martinez, Johnny Peralta. I got a big bat behind me. You see the way guys pitch me? That explains everything, end quote. If you're Cabrera's current teammate, Nico Goodrum, who had been batting behind Cabrera in the lineup's number four spot, that's pretty much a shot at you. Goodrum is batting 214 with three home runs. Cabrera's right. That's not going to scare anybody. Fans of Sabre Metrics will say that lineup construction is a myth. The numbers don't support that a good hitter hitting behind a great hitter makes a difference. Numbers also show that Cabrera hasn't been thrown fewer strikes since lesser hitters have batted behind him. So there's that. But I've always believed it makes sense that someone like Cabrera will get better pitches to hit, won't be avoided and put on base if the next guy up has a chance of driving him in. Driven deep to right field, back to the track, back to the wall, gone the other way. Miguel Cabrera has gone deep. Whether it was to appease Cabrera or because he agreed with his star, Tigers manager Ron Gardenheider made a change in the lineup. Goodrum was moved to the leadoff spot while Cabrera dropped down to number four. Maybe that'll help Cabrera if he ends up leading off an inning or if guys are on base before he bats. Now betting behind Cabrera? Ronnie Rodriguez, who has the profile of a major league utility player, but is actually hitting very well with a 312 batting average and six home runs. That's five more than Cabrera has, by the way. But Cabrera also isn't being a good teammate, shiving one of his guys to the media. It's not what a young, rebuilding team like the Tigers needs from one of its veteran players. And that lack of leadership and poise is where Cabrera falls far short 
of someone like Victor Martinez. No, Cabrera doesn't have to be a leader, even though his status and salary largely presume that position for him. And he probably is frustrated that he's not hitting for more power, or even worse, being asked about it by reporters. But it's not Nico Goodrum's or Ronnie Rodriguez's fault that they're batting behind Cabrera, and he doesn't have to be a jerk about it. This is the risk of leaving one last star standing on a formerly good team, a team which used to be a perennial contender. Cabrera has watched teammates like Justin Verlander and J.D. Martinez get traded away while he stays in Detroit because his contract is too massive to trade, especially for a hitter with declining skills and a body type that typically doesn't age well in baseball. Some players would realize that their role needs to change to become more of a mentor, but that's not Cabrera's style. And for all of his boyish, playful charm, he's shown sullen, nastier tendencies during his time in Detroit, and that came out in those remarks. Will Cabrera end his career as a beloved figure among Detroit sports fans? Considering the two MVPs and the era of winning baseball he was a part of, even without a World Series championship, he probably will. Or will they remember him complaining when the team was terrible? Cabrera is signed for at least four more seasons after 2019. It's possible he'll be here if and when the Tigers do rebuild into a contender. If that's the case, yeah, he'll be remembered fondly because he rode through the good times and bad. But that's not entirely up to him. So maybe it's up to the Tigers themselves to ensure Cabrera's legacy is positive. And maybe, just maybe, Cabrera was issuing that challenge to the front office. But does he really deserve that benefit of the doubt? And that's our show, folks. My little cleanup project is done. If you listen through the Endgame spoilers and my Miguel Cabrera issues, I truly appreciate that. We'll be a bit more current with the next episode, but I hope you didn't mind me catching up on some stuff I wanted to talk about. You can let me know what you think at thepodcast at gmail.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-S. We're also on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at thepodcasts. I also can be found on Twitter at Ian Cass, I-A-N-C-A-S-S, if you'd prefer your contact to be a bit more personal. There will definitely be another podcast quickly following this one as I get back on schedule. Hopefully you notice two shows in your podcatcher and are up for some extra listening. Let's do this again soon, okay? Until then, be good and be home by 2 a.m. Don't you have to be up by 7? Yeah.